you can have all of those other tokenization conversations, stablecoin conversations, everything that's happening in DeFi, the world of NFTs, all of that, I think is still absolutely relevant and can grow right alongside, you know, infrastructure that supports crypto as a diversifying asset in a portfolio, along with other boring TradFi assets. Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Did you hear that loud cheering noise last week? It was all the fans of crypto applauding the start of trading for 11 new Bitcoin exchange traded funds. More than 10 years after rejecting the first applications, the SEC has finally approved the listing of crypto in ETF form. Now what happens? Well, this week I'm joined by my colleague, Jeff Billingham, who leads strategic initiatives at Chainalysis. He's been watching the Bitcoin ETF situation unfold since the Winklevoss twins first filed for a Bitcoin ETF in July of 2013. Jeff and I delve into the significance of these ETFs, explaining how they simplify access to Bitcoin by eliminating the technological hurdles of owning and transacting with cryptocurrency. Jeff explains the differences between the spot and futures ETFs, which have been around for some time. We get into the technical details of where your Bitcoin are actually held when you buy a share in an ETF. And we discuss how the industry finally got around regulator concerns about market manipulation with surveillance sharing agreements. And if you think crypto and Bitcoin is more accessible than ever, then you definitely must attend the Chainalysis Links Conference, which is coming back to New York City on April 9th and 10th. We've got a terrific lineup of speakers to cover a range of topics, including ETFs. And if you buy your ticket as soon as you finish this episode, you might still be able to get a discount before prices increase. As always, the link to register can be found in the show notes. Last thing before we get to the episode, although we discuss ETFs and the impact on the crypto investment landscape in this episode, please remember folks, our podcasts are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide legal, tax, financial, or investment advice. Listeners should consult their own advisors before making these types of decisions. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Jeff Billingham. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Ann. Great to be here. Well, I think all of crypto is excited to cover the topic that we've got today, which is the Bitcoin ETFs. Let's start at the beginning. We saw these launch just a day prior to uh, to when we're recording, Friday, January 12th. What's happened in the last day? I know there's been a ton of movement, transaction volume in and out of these things. Maybe start with a quick summary there for us. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, this was a real sort of watershed moment for for the crypto industry. And in terms of the market response, I think we've seen over four and a half billion dollars worth of of US dollar trade volume go into all of the approved ETFs. So I think BlackRock's ETF made up, you know, over a billion of that volume. And that's either the second highest, or I think one of the highest debut volumes for for a new ETF. So, you know, amazing work to see there. Grayscale was a conversion. So their previously live Bitcoin trust was converted into a spot ETF. So, you know, they saw volumes of something over over $2 billion worth. So a considerable amount of first day volume across, you know, I think all 11 ETFs that were approved. It's something that I think people who follow the crypto industry closely have been anticipating for months, in some cases, years. I I read the other day that the first application for one of these uh, was submitted to the SEC like way back in 2013. So a decade in the making. Maybe for people that aren't following quite as closely, like what is an ETF and why is this such a big deal? I have really fond memories, I will say, of the Winklevoss Trust ETF getting filed back in yeah the middle of 2013. So it's been a long, long road since then. But ETFs, I mean, exchange-traded funds, they're derivative products that probably most people 
are familiar with through like their retail brokerage, right? You, instead of owning the underlying security um, or looking at, you know, the stock of a particular company, you can look at an ETF and sort of look at it thematically and say, what does this ETF cover? The financial institutions that manage the sort of construction and maintenance of the ETF are the ones who are responsible with actually owning the underlying securities. But, you know, you can select an ETF or, a, you know, any retail investor can select an ETF that covers broad themes like energy or healthcare or things like that. So the spot Bitcoin ETF is just a, a, you know, a new way to sort of own access to the price exposure of Bitcoin without actually having to own the underlying Bitcoin itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about in, uh, you know, like very common in retirement portfolios in the United States, you see people buying the iShares S&P ETF, which is, yep. is effectively allows you to get a slice of every company that's a component of the ETF. You don't have to do all the legwork to go and buy the shares of those companies directly. You buy this index product. It automatically rebalances as people come into or leave the, the S&P 500 index. It's a really simple thing generally it's it's very low fee loads versus maybe directly trading those assets so i i think about it as like a big simplification but the point you just made in the world of crypto the simplification is is magnified here because the, in all the talk about the etfs no one once has said okay so this is how you get your crypto wallet <laughs> and then you you need to uh you know fund your wallet this way and then you need to send something to this address like all of that goes away so i think there's some huge power here for you know the common individual that's interested in bitcoin as an asset class but has maybe felt turned off by the technological hurdle to get into the space yeah i mean there's also just the ease with which you can see this up against all of your other investments right you know for crypto nerds like i've been in this industry i've been in this for you know a decade now and i have no problem you know having my wallets and working with exchanges and also having my investments elsewhere but for other people who want that sort of investment you know to invest in it as an asset class to see it right alongside you know all of the other you know money market funds and etfs and single stock equities that you are you know rates products that you own within your portfolio I think that really changes the game as opposed to having this sort of this little island of, of crypto owned assets uh, at exchanges. It's a whole different sort of perspective on investing in crypto. A number of people I've talked to have been excited about the opportunity to take funds that are in their retirement account, right? So you and I are both in the US. People have either a 401k at their company or maybe they've rolled that over into an IRA. And just to be able to very easily allocate some portion of, of those kind of long-term holdings into Bitcoin without having to go through the machinations of like withdrawing funds from the account or finding a, an IRA provider that allows you to somehow directly acquire digital assets. That whole complexity and headache just goes away in this model, right? Totally. It totally goes away. And I, I'm also a huge proponent of owning your own crypto. Like, you know, I think I think these things are mutually ex uh, not mutually exclusive, though, right? Like you can use these products as a way to diversify an overall portfolio. And also, I would continue to encourage people to, you know, learn how to own and acquire crypto. But it's a very easy thing to do for those who maybe didn't have the crypto bug, you know, five, 10 years ago. Yeah, one step at a time. Maybe if we can drill into some of the, the technical details, again, for folks that don't live and breathe this stuff like you and I do. So this is a spot ETF, which is different because we've actually had a futures ETF for a long time. Can you maybe explain the difference between futures and spot and why this spot ETF that's just been uh, made available is, is meaningfully different? 
Yeah, sure. So if you think about an ETF, right, it's a sort of the simplification, as you said, of owning exposure to, you know, a certain class of products or a certain, you know, pool of assets. And the spot futures ETFs is actually, uh, you know, it's an ETF that's based on the futures contracts of Bitcoin. So there are futures markets in the U.S. for for Bitcoin. Uh, and ETF, the spot futures ETFs are based off of those contracts. It's not based off of the sole primary asset of Bitcoin, right? So the spot Bitcoin ETFs, the reason these are new is they're not referencing the futures market contracts, they're referencing the primary asset of Bitcoin itself in this case. And does that mean when you buy a share in the ETF, the price of the underlying asset is somehow different between the spot and the futures ETF products? Like break this down for the average person. What, does this really matter? This gets into the discussion about, you know, why the ETF for futures was approved versus the spot ETF not getting approved because the reality is they're referencing a market that is so closely correlated. <laughs> but in terms of the construction of the spot Bitcoin ETF, right? Like the participants that are managing this ETF are actually purchasing Bitcoin in this case. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with purchasing or holding futures contracts for Bitcoin. It has everything to do with actually holding Bitcoin as a primary asset. So I would say this is, you'll probably hear, and a lot of listeners maybe have heard people relate this to the gold ETF, right? This is sort of akin to that. That, right, the way that gold ETFs were started, you know, in, I think sometime in the mid aughts. That's all about you know having custodians actually hold gold for the benefit of ETF holders. So it's the same thing in this case. The spot Bitcoin ETF is referencing actual physical, quote unquote, physical Bitcoin um, <laughs> that is held by by custodians in this case, um, and nothing to do with the futures contracts. Physical digital. Bitcoin. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I never quite know. Like we talk about physical delivery in Bitcoin and we all know that that's not really a thing. But uh, yeah. holding yeah. Bitcoin is really the change that we see that I think is really, really, really exciting about spot Bitcoin ETFs. A number of players, some of whom have been involved in the crypto ecosystem for some time, like Fidelity, I think they've been kind of early amongst the traditional finance players being proponents of digital assets. But others like BlackRock, who you mentioned earlier, you know, seem to be having huge success with the ETF. I would call a recent convert. You know, they had not been attending all the Bitcoin conferences for the last decade, but suddenly they're now a major player in the, in the sector and they're actually having to acquire the asset directly, right? They're now involved. I mean, you know, I, I will say that the team at BlackRock has been there for a very long time. They've been working on this for years and years and years. So I'll give credit to where credit's due. A lot of these, you know, institutions that, you know, maybe the headlines sort of state that they're being cautious, they're anti-Bitcoin, what have you. Like there have been teams that have been dedicated to this for, I mean, probably close to a decade at this point. So kudos to them for, for getting this across the line and, you know, doing all the evangelizing that we at Chainalysis do for, you know, the traditional financial markets. It's important to remember also that BlackRock is the sponsor in this case. For the vast majority of the ETFs involved, the actual custodian, the person who's actually, the, or the company, right, the entity that's actually holding the Bitcoin for the benefit of the ultimate shareholders of the ETF is actually, in most cases for the all the ETFs, it's, it's Coinbase is sort of the, is the crypto custodian, whereas BlackRock is the sponsor and the manager of the ETF. Interesting. So explain what that custodian role does. When I buy a share of the BlackRock ETF, BlackRock then instructs the custodian to go out and actually purchase the underlying asset, in this case, Bitcoins, and they then hold them 
for the benefit of BlackRock, as long as I'm holding those shares? Is that kind of what's happening behind the scene? So there's a little bit, it's sort of like a, a balancing act, right? It's it's a balancing act between the, the end investors like you and me or any other consumers who might go through Schwab or their retail brokerage account to purchase these. There always has to be a balance between how much Bitcoin is actually held and the shares that are representing that ownership. That fun role is actually played by uh, what we call authorized participants in ETFs. So these are you know, typically broker dealers who are able to go to the sponsor. In this case, you know, we're talking about BlackRock, but any of these sponsors, VanEck, Grayscale, Fidelity, you know, these authorized participants will say, hey, you know, I'm looking to either create more shares of the ETF or redeem shares of the ETF based on how the market is moving, right? If that imbalance is occurring, those authorized participants will choose to redeem or create new shares based on where the market is. So they're the ones who are sort of in charge with keeping everything in balance. Whereas BlackRock will then, you know, work with and instruct Coinbase to to make sure that their accounts, the, the Bitcoin that is owned for the benefit of the ETF is, is in check with the number of outstanding shares that those authorized participants manage in the market. Interesting. And I've read in some of the press reports that Goldman Sachs and I think JP Morgan are two of the more notable players that have signed up to be these authorized participants, right? Is that the role that they're playing? Yeah. So the APs, I mean, the ones that I've, I've read about, I know Jane Street's involved, Virtu's involved, the broker dealer at JP is involved. I think one of the late stage sort of speed bumps for this with the SEC was actually a conversation about whether or not the ETS were going to be accepting um, in-kind transactions. So that's to say that balancing act, you know, as it was originally proposed, the balancing act would have been actually transacting with Bitcoin. So receiving Bitcoin for shares or shares for Bitcoin. What ended up getting passed was a cash model instead. So that cash model, as a result of a lot of the ongoing concern and regulatory sort of lack of clarity as to whether or not broker dealers can, can actually hold and trade Bitcoin. Bitcoin, right? The idea here is let Coinbase or the the listed named crypto custodian manage the actual Bitcoin holdings and have these authorized participants at BlackRock move cash that is representative of the value of that Bitcoin. So what that did is it, you know, it, you know, I'm hopeful that we get in-kind transactions, redemptions, uh, and creation models going forward. But what that did was actually open the door for, for banks to be authorized participants in this space as well. So I think the trade-off is you have more, you know, legitimate, well-regulated financial institutions who are able to, you know, become an authorized participant and a broker-dealer for these markets. Interesting. I'm glad you explained that because I've been hearing this in-kind versus cash comparisons and I didn't totally understand the difference. So what I think you said is because of the it being cash rather than in-kind, meaning in crypto, banks that would otherwise probably be restricted from holding and transacting in cryptocurrency directly suddenly are able to act as these authorized participants kind of managing the, the market for the, the ETF transactional volume. Is that right? Exactly. So in-kind transactions always happen, you know, for, for those other ETFs that we discussed that might be a basket of underlying securities, all those broker dealers, they are registered and they're, they're able to legally actually transact with those securities and with cash between between themselves. Whereas in this case, the holding and custody of crypto for broker dealers is still a gray spot. A cash prepay model that was instituted sort of at the last minute, I would say around November, December, we saw all of the sponsors start to refile with a cash model instead of an in-kind model does allow for just more financial institutions to, to participate as, as authorized participants. 
And what would be the process to add in kind? Like, how do these things evolve over time? Is is that a whole new approval cycle? Is there an update model once they've been in market and it seems like things are largely working reasonably well? Like, how, how has this unfolded historically with other ETF products? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because I, I don't know or I can't think of a, an ETF where it was sort of a regulatory gray area as to whether or not broker dealers could actually hold it and yeah. transact with it. So there is sort of a little, there's like a lack of precedence when it comes to, you know, when we might see in-kind transactions happen for a spot Bitcoin ETF or a spot crypto ETF. But, you know, I'm hopeful that the regulatory discussions around, you know, concerns about market manipulation and fraud and all that, you know, we can we can work through those to to get some clarity as to whether or not broker dealers can actually hold crypto right alongside, you know, any other security or precious metal or any kind of security that they might hold on their books. Talk a little bit about market manipulation, because this had been the the long-held objection, I think, that was registered by the SEC in, in rejecting previous applications, was the fact that there was no, maybe no central clearinghouse, or or just the fact that in certain venues, you know, Bitcoin was very lightly traded and therefore more easily manipulatable than, say, other things that underpinned similar ETF products. Like, how did that get resolved in this case, where we finally got the approval to happen. This is where I think, you know, the work that Grayscale has been doing has been really consequential for the decision making in, in all of the spot ETF applications that we've seen come to market, you know, just in the last couple of days, because, you know, they, they had their, their trust, which they put in an application to convert that trust, which was denied by the SEC for, for all those reasons that you mentioned, right? Fraud, market manipula- manipulation, concern around, you know, what's actually happening in the, in the crypto markets, right? And an inability to understand you know, the dimensions of fraud that might plague this market. And in the meantime, they had, you know, approved, you know, over the course of the last several years, approved those futures ETFs. So the SEC ultimately, through a bunch of court actions between the SEC and Grayscale, ultimately decided not to appeal a decision that was made by the DC Court of Appeals that the SEC was, quote unquote, arbitrary and capricious in in denying Grayscale's application to convert their trust to an ETF. Primarily because, you know, that Court of Appeals sort of, hey, SEC, you know, your failure to explain why you disagree with Grayscale's assertion that the SPART ETF of the spot markets and the futures markets are so closely correlated. You know, why would you approve futures ETFs and deny a spot ETF? You know, because they were not able to back that up, back that assertion up, the Court of Appeals, you know, sided with Grayscale in that case. And once I think it was, you know, towards the end of August or beginning of September of 2023, when it was clear that the SEC was not going to appeal that. That's when I think a lot of the market that has been watching this for the last several years or several months felt really positive about the prospect of of these ETF applications being approved. That all makes sense. I guess, you know, thinking a little bit more about this kind of market surveillance thing, like I think about rules in equities markets. Like if you're a publicly traded company, it's very tightly controlled. Insiders aren't allowed to make public statements except in very specific ways and during specific periods of the quarter, like an earnings call. In Bitcoin, there's no company, but there are a lot of insiders. I mean, there's people who have lots of lots of accumulated information, either through you know historical knowledge or relationship. And Bitcoin's not traded on a single or even a small number of exchanges, right? It's it's available sure. widely, but there's you know a number of market makers that I think kind of wired 
all those trading venues together, they probably enjoy advantaged views, if I had to guess. And that's just speculation on my part. But like, how then do you get to a similar level of confidence that there isn't market manipulation and demonstrate that on an ongoing basis? Like, I have to imagine that was a prerequisite for any of these applications getting approved. Another novel bit to these applications that I think BlackRock actually sort of really brought to this conversation was the idea of surveillance sharing agreements, which is not not a novel concept within sort of the rest of finance, but they brought a surveillance sharing agreement to their ETF application, which is, you know, essentially a way to say, hey, there's an agreement between the listing exchange, in their case, it was NASDAQ, and the Bitcoin custodian, the entity that's responsible for making sure that the Bitcoin that is owned by the ETF is actually safe and secure. And that that surveillance sharing agreement was essentially a way to tell the SEC, hey, we're going above and beyond, and we're sort of working with the custodian and the listing exchange to share information that does help either uncover market manipulation or hopefully prevent that kind of market manipulation and, and fraud from, from occurring. Their, their ability to share yeah. information about you know providence and other details that are private between those two parties was, I think, a, a great way. I mean, most of the other applications followed suit really quickly on creating a surveillance sharing agreement inside of their applications as well. So I think that's a really good sign and you know provided a, a lot of coverage above and beyond what the SEC was, was really concerned about in previous application rejections. Yeah, that's terrific. I mean, it seems like it could have some really positive long-term implications for the overall market. And I guess it's probably similar to how FINRA works in the equities world. Like they perform a similar kind of information sharing between broker-dealers and and exchanges, I think, if I'm understanding that. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it all comes down to, you know, ultimately, like, it is KYC conversations, right? You have to, to make sure that in the case of FINRA, they're licensing broker dealers, or, you know, in ETF setup, where you're relying on the KYC and anti-fraud, anti-market manipulation practices that a custodian manages, you, you know, sort of relying on that in order to make sure that the actual underlying of these ETFs is, is solid and safe and secure. So I think, you know, having that in right and having those agreements, you know, detailed out with the SEC does go a long way to providing a, a best practice to get people much more clear on what the real risks are, you know, when you're actually investing in a spot Bitcoin ETF. Yeah, I'm incredibly excited about it because I think it's it's the first really good piece of news that the crypto industry has had uh, maybe in the last 18 months. And so I'm treating it as a, a harbinger of good things to come in 2024. But I do have to recognize, you know, the original crypto ethos was so much about defining your own destiny, right? Not not your keys, not your crypto. I'm going to eliminate all the middlemen in the financial system and I'm going to I'm going to directly hold all of my financial worth and I'm going to interact with the individuals that I want to interact with directly without having to suffer kind of the overhead of the existing financial system and the risks. This seems like the absolute reverse of that ethos, right? We've we've taken in Bitcoin and turned it into a very classic financial instrument with layers of of middlemen. As someone that's been in the space for a long time and I think is very pro crypto generally, like how how do you feel about that? So I love the the idea that this is Harbinger of good things to come. I'm I'm really excited for this year for the crypto markets. My personal ethos for the year is yes and. So <laughs> I, I take that and apply it here, which is to say, you know, I think that Bitcoin and crypto, there are aspects and characteristics and possibilities that have absolutely nothing to do with looking at it as like a financial tool or a financial instrument or an asset class. But nonetheless, there are characteristics of crypto that absolutely behave like 
like something that, at least for me, I would want in my portfolio. So I, I think this is very, very, very helpful. And this, I mean, this is a great opportunity to sort of look at the use case, if you will, of crypto, of crypto as an asset class. Like this is the type of industry support and industry infrastructure that we need to build out that use case, you know, for a whole class of investors who have really sort of probably heard about crypto and thought this is like for tinfoil hat, <laughs> crazy anarchists, right? Like this is a very, very, very different conversation. So I think that matters duration of crypto as an asset class, like this is a huge, huge moment to be excited about. All of the other use cases of crypto aren't mutually exclusive to that. You can have all of those other, like the tokenization conversations, stablecoin conversations, you know, everything that's happening in DeFi, the world of art, the world of NFTs, all of that, I think is still absolutely relevant and can grow right alongside, you know, infrastructure that supports crypto as a diversifying asset in a portfolio along with other boring TradFi assets. We obviously work with almost all of the crypto businesses out there. Do you think the existence of the ETFs actually pulls some of the transaction activity and direct business that had been happening at those centralized exchanges? Or do the ETFs primarily draw in money that was not invested elsewhere? Is this going to be new newcomers to the space mostly? What do you think? I'm probably not the one to try to read the tea leaves here, but I think, you know, there's going to be a huge push for more and better enterprise ready financial institution ready infrastructure that does support the transactions of managing Bitcoin on behalf of all these ETFs. Like there's still going to be a lot of movement there based on the US dollar inflows to all these ETFs. So there's still a lot of, you know, I'd expect transaction activity. I don't think this is necessarily taking anything away from anybody who wants to open a Coinbase account. It's really two very different things. And I, I mean, as somebody who just bought some of the spot Bitcoin ETF yesterday, and as somebody who has crypto on exchanges, like those two experiences and those those two activities, you know, represent something very, very different to me that I want to participate in both. So I can only hope that these spot ETFs bring in new investors who haven't taken the time to download a wallet or open an account at an exchange. And, you know, maybe they will follow suit with, with doing that after having invested in some of these ETFs. That's my bet. And I, I have no inside information either. So it's pure speculation. But just watching the news coverage this week, it seems likely that you're going to draw in a lot of new people who find the path to involvement so much simplified that it's like, great, this is terrific. It's exactly what I wanted yeah. to do. May not totally understand even what Bitcoin is at the point of inception, but it draws them into the space and then grows from there. I'm curious about a related topic. I've been hearing kind of nonstop this drumbeat around real world world asset tokenization. I'm curious, does the ETF accelerate that? Like what effect do you think it'll have on some of these uh, asset tokenization projects we've been hearing about? It's a good question. I think to the extent that it it provides investors, again, who have maybe looked at all of the different use cases in crypto with a degree of cynicism or maybe a degree of like fatigue, because we've been talking about tokenization for a very long time. I mean, even people within crypto have sort of said, oh, when is this taking off? Like, I know that there is a lot of anxiety around the inertia of the tokenization conversation happening. I, but I think, you know, ETFs will, again, provide that sort of level of professionalization and maturation of crypto in general that might allow investors investors to like take another look at or take another consideration of, you know, what are the tenants of tokenization for other financial products. I mean, it also opens the door to maybe consider how might other ETFs be constructed that are not just solely about Bitcoin or solely about Ether. What kind of underlying basket of tokens 
be they stable coins or or anything else, like what might that actually entail? So hopefully there'll be like a maybe a renewed interest and optimism for like the thought experiments that would go into looking at or considering ETFs that, you know, might represent crypto assets that are not just simply sort of the most classic ones that we on the market know about. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. Well, Jeff, this has been fantastic. Just to wrap up, like walk us through what happens next. So as we're recording this, we got 11 approvals yesterday, two days ago, and then yesterday they actually started trading massive inflows. What can we expect next week and beyond? You know, immediately there is going to be, I think, a, a big push on fees. You have a number of ETFs that are out there that are offering, you know, more or less the same thing. So I'm excited to see how these different sponsors sort of diversify their offering by either way of, you know, minimizing their costs or getting innovative with their sort of sales and distribution channels on this. I think you'll definitely see a little bit more of that variation, like you sort of we were talking about with with tokenization. I mean, Grayscale just filed uh, another application for a, a covered call. Bitcoin ETF. They did that yesterday, which is really interesting. That would sort of put a new flavor of options contracts into the investment goals of that particular ETF. And I know that I think ARK and BlackRock have both filed spot ETFs as well. So we'll see, I think, a lot more variation. And I'm excited to see sort of, you know, what the decisions are um, on those. You know, in the long tr- on the long run, I think we'll see, you know, a real big push for better infrastructure and better data too, right? You've got a lot more people who need to be, you know, confident that they can move and transfer Bitcoin and know where it's coming from and know where it's going to and be certain that they're not associated with any kind of illicit activity. And people will look for better data, right? People will want to understand the markets more and more and more as they allocate a small percentage of their overall net worth into this asset class. Who's using it? What region of the world is using it? Why? What are the use cases? Where is it growing? Like those are all questions that, you know, data providers, I mean, like us, uh, not to really <laughs> too, too much for chain analysis here, but that's the kinds of themes that I think are going, there's gonna be a lot of focus on, you know, how do you answer those questions with data for investors and, and potential investors? That's right. All those questions, that's exactly what we do here at Chainalysis. So if you're out there listening and you need a little bit of help, uh, you know how to find us. Jeff, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us fresh off vacation and diving into this topic. And uh, we'll have to have you back on the show soon. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ian. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed what you heard today, do me a favor. Open up your podcast app, rate the show, give us a review, tell us what you liked. Even better. You can share the podcast with your friends. And of course, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. 2023 was a year of recovery for cryptocurrency, as the industry rebounded from scandals, blowups, and price declines. With crypto assets rebounding and market activity growing over the course of 2023, many believe that crypto winter is ending and a new growth phase may be soon upon us. But what did all of that mean for crypto crime? The Chainalysis team has just released highlights from our 2024 crypto crime report. Last year, we observed a total of 20 billion of illicit activity. With some meaningful 4.2 differences over previous years, 2023 saw declines in scamming and stolen funds, while ransomware and darknet market activity grew significantly. Head down to the show notes to check out the blog and sign up to get the full report delivered to you when we release it in February.